Welcome to the podcast of Woburn Baptist Church. We hope that you enjoy listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. If you turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. Um, it will remind us that uh, Titus is a letter that Paul wrote to uh, Titus, this young pastor. Um, Titus was serving as a pastor on the island of Crete. And uh, Paul had, had left him there as, as Paul was traveling around to different uh, places. He had some companions that he would bring along, and, and he would go and he would preach the gospel, and uh, people would get saved, but he didn't stay around long enough for them to establish a church and get everything set in order. So he left Titus there in Crete to do that. He, he left Titus to help the churches to appoint elders in each town, uh, in, or pastors in each town, and uh, to be able to set it in order what remained, what Paul didn't have time to do. One of the things we've seen that's emphasized over and over again in this book, in Titus, is the connection between having a right theology, right doctrine, and right living. Uh, if we have something wrong with our doctrine, it's probably going to lead to something wrong in our living. And uh, that's what this passage today is, uh, is emphasizing again. It's talking about our motivation. What motivates us to live a godly life? What motivates us to follow after Jesus and to, to have self-control and all the other things that uh, he's been talking about here in this letter? Let's read... Uh, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And I want, you, I want us to think about that as, as, as I read the passage. Think about how this passage shows what motivates us in order to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to Christ. Starting in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord, you give us commands and you give us motivation. You give us the fuel to be able to obey you. Lord, in the words of one of the early Christians, Lord, command what you will and grant what you will command. 
Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Lord, I pray that you would be with me, give me grace. I need your strength to be able to speak your word. I'm a wretched sinner. And I would have no hope in the world if it wasn't for Jesus Christ and him giving his life for me. Lord, give me strength. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin with the ending this morning. Paul tells Titus to declare these things. To declare these things. While I was studying this, it began, I, when I was first reading it, I began to think of declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, as if they were synonyms. As if they meant the same thing, as if he was just saying the same thing in different words. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized there's a difference between declaring and exhorting and rebuking. The first thing he says there at the end of the passage we're looking at today is declare these things. When we declare something, we're stating something has happened. When we declare the gospel, we are declaring that Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. We're declaring something. We're declaring a message, the message of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again on the third day. And we're declaring that he has made a way for salvation, that everyone who believes in him can look to Jesus and be saved. We're making a declaration. We don't add anything to it. We don't have to to do anything there except believe it. But the preacher here, Titus, is told, declare these things. And then he's followed up, exhort and rebuke. The first thing has to be the declaration. He's stating what Jesus has done. And then he says, exhort and rebuke. Now, exhortation is telling us what we need to do as believers to to do in response to what Jesus has done. He's exhort, he says to exhort people, to, to give us instruction on how to live out a Christian life, and to rebuke, to rebuke. Uh, so whenever someone has false teaching or false uh, wrong behavior, we're to rebuke. But the basis for it all is what we declare. We declare the gospel, and on the basis of the gospel, we exhort and we rebuke with all authority. He says, not, let no one disregard you. Now, I'm going to back up to verse 11 here. What is the message that we declare? Starting in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. Grace is a gift. Grace means that God has given us Salvation. This, this grace of God, it's, it's a, a grace that brings salvation, the verse tells us. We don't have to do anything to earn it. It is a free gift. 
That's what makes it grace. If we had to do something to earn salvation, if we had to do something to earn God's grace, it wouldn't be grace. It would be something we earn. It would be something that we get as wages. But here it says, the grace of God has appeared. And it's a grace that brings salvation. What is this grace that has appeared? It's the fact that Jesus has come. All through the Old Testament, we were waiting. God's people were waiting as they heard the story of, of that seed of the woman who would one day come and crush the serpent's head. We, we, we see in the Old Testament how it all points to a day which would come when grace would appear so that all men could be saved. Not, not just the Jewish nation. It was no longer going to be uh, narrowed in and just specifically the Jewish nation any longer, and it wasn't supposed to be just Israel any longer, but now the grace of God has appeared to all men. Jew, Gentile, black, white, poor, rich, every classification we can think of, the grace of God has appeared to all men. Because of what Jesus has done, He has split the veil. There was once a veil that stood there in the temple separating man from God and only the high priest could come inside the veil. Only once a year. And if there was anything wrong about what He did, He could be struck dead for walking in there and not being worthy. But Jesus Christ has torn the veil down between God and man. And now, we can all come to Jesus. The grace of God has appeared to all men. What does this grace do? This grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live in self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We need to think about the order here. The grace of God trains us to live self-controlled lives. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace comes first. We don't renounce ungodliness. We don't renounce Worldly passions, so that God will accept us. No. It's the grace of God. It's experiencing His grace that trains us, that changes us. Grace comes first. We don't do anything to earn it. It's just the grace of God that has come in Jesus Christ. That grace that we declare, it trains us. We don't want to get the cart before the horse. You know, that, that's an old analogy, but basically, you know, you've got the cart and the horse, and the horse is what pulls the cart, right? But if, the, if they're switched around, that cart is never going to pull that horse anywhere. Grace is the horse, and the cart is our obedience. If you don't experience in grace, if you don't experience grace... That, that 
we're getting the cart before the horse. The grace is what is the fuel that produces our obedience. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. I think it can be common for us, when we think about renouncing ungodliness and worldly passion, we often think about what's outside of us, don't we? We think about someone else and renouncing someone else's, but that's not what this is talking about. When it says that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, it's talking about in us. We're renouncing what we used to be. We're renouncing that sinner we used to be. When we have experienced God's grace and His love, whenever we have experienced that, when we've been born again, when our hearts have been changed because of experiencing the grace of the free gift of Jesus dying for us, That trains our hearts so that we renounce our own ungodliness. We renounce that ungodliness that was in us and is still in us. We don't become spotless saints overnight. Well, in Jesus' eyes, we do. When He saves us, He washes us white as snow. We are perfectly clean and acceptable in His sight. But we know sanctification is also a process where we become more and more like Jesus. And so sanctification is this renouncing ungodliness that's left in us. When we have experienced God's grace, then there is an inward it's the Spirit working in us that, t- show, that trains our hearts to renounce ungodliness. And when we sin, when we fall, when we have a wrong attitude about another brother or sister, when we do something wrong, that grace, that Holy Spirit inside of us trains our hearts so that we renounce that sin. We turn away from sin. Another word for that is repentance. Martin Luther in the Reformation, you know, one of the very first things that he talked about in that 95 Theses that he nailed on the door at Wittenberg, started the Protestant Reformation, was repentance is not just doing penance, doing something to make up for what you've done wrong. Repentance is not that, but it is a life that is transformed, and it is a life that is continually repenting, continually turning away from what we've done wrong and following after Jesus. We're continually, a life that's continually repentance and turning away. We, as believers, continue every day to renounce that ungodliness that is inside our own hearts in order to be able to pursue grace. Not in order to get it and earn it, but pursue it because He's already given it to us. It says, it's trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We all have to learn self-control, don't we? It doesn't come natural. 
But that's what it's talking about here in the present age. In the present age, we've experienced God's grace. And so, in the present age, we renounce our ungodly. That means the now. We declare what happened in the past. We declare what happened in the past. The gospel that Jesus came and He died for our sins. And we live now lives that are self-controlled and godly with the fuel of the grace in the present age. And then we've got past, present, and now here's the future. We're looking to something in the future. It says, we're waiting for the blessed hope. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Past, God has sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. We declare that message. Present, we live self-controlled, godly lives now because of what He's done. Future, We're looking forward. We're waiting with eager expectation for the coming of Jesus again. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is coming again. Amen. Jesus Christ is alive and well today. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Easter. You know, yesterday, we were visited... We ha- I don't know, uh, maybe your neighborhoods are having uh, some of these folks, but uh, we, we were visited yesterday by uh, Jehovah's Witness. And uh, they, they had their literature, and they were wanting to uh, invite us to something so that we could commemorate the death of Jesus. That's not what we do on Easter. <laughs> on Easter, <laughs> we, we, we remember the resurrection. We remember that Jesus rose again. That he, he lives forevermore. Jesus rose again and He ascended into heaven where He sits at His Father's right hand now ruling and reigning as King over the universe. And He is coming again one day. He's going to come riding on a white horse. Every eye shall see and every knee will bow because Jesus Christ is Lord. And as believers who have experienced the grace of God, who have trusted that Jesus Christ's death was for us, we long for, we look forward to Jesus coming again. That day whenever He will come and He will wipe away every tear from every eye. And there will be no longer any pain and sorrow, no death. But we will live with Him. We will reign with Him forever. We, this is a motivation, isn't it? It's another motivation. We look to the future. We look for the fact that Jesus will one day come. And when we look at our world today, and we look at how, how tragic everything is, and how, how sinful and corrupt the world is, We can look to Jesus and be reminded that it's not always going to be this way. Jesus is coming again. And that's something that motivates us to just keep on going. When everything else looks sad and depressing in life, we look to Jesus knowing that He is coming again. He will wipe away every tear and He will 
bring about a state in which there is no longer any death, no longer any crying, no longer any pain. And then it talks in verse 14 about what Jesus did. Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself for his, a purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Nobody murdered Jesus. He gave himself. It was part of God's plan from the very beginning before the foundation of the world. His plan was to send His Son, Jesus, to come and die for us. He gave Himself to redeem us. When we redeem a coupon, we turn, on, we turn in the coupon to redeem it, and, and we get, you know, uh, uh, maybe we get an item, or maybe we, you know, I've got a coupon in my wallet I got for my birthday. It was, uh, uh, it's for a free dessert at Kuna's. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm going to go and redeem that coupon. I'm going to take it to Kahuna's. I'm going to give it to them. And they're going to give me ice cream. Okay? Now, Jesus came and He gave Himself. He gave Himself to redeem us. He bought us with His blood. That's one of the things that Jesus did. And that is a powerful motivator for our obedience, isn't it? Jesus, while we were lost in our sin, headed for hell, Jesus gave Himself to redeem us, to set us free from slavery to sin. And He redeemed us. And it says also, not only did He redeem us, but it was to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. We were dirty, filthy, in the mud. And Jesus came and found us and He purified us. And He washes us clean. And He washes us white as snow. No matter what kind of past we may have, no matter what kind of things He has done, He has in His work on the cross made it so we can be washed white as snow. He redeemed us from the slavery to sin, and He's washed us, He's purified us, and He is our Lord. He has redeemed us, and He's washed us for Himself. He is our Creator. He is our Redeemer. And we are His. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. We give our hearts to Him. When we believe on Him for salvation, we hand Him our hearts and He owns us. We belong to Jesus. And it says we are His own possession. It's, it's, this is like a, a treasured possession. It's, it's like my daughter has a, a blanket that she has had since she was a little bitty baby. Her uh, grandmother made it for her, and she, she even to this day sleeps with it every single night. That is her treasured possession. 
We are Jesus' treasured possession. He has redeemed us. While, while we were stuck in the mud, while we were slaves to sin, God has redeemed us and washed us off, and now we are His treasured possession. And He loves us. And He has made us to be a people who are zealous for good works. Not to sit on our butts and wait. Not just to live just the same way as everybody else in the world lives. But He has redeemed us and done all of those things for us. He's given us this grace so that we would be people who then follow with good works. Again, I'll remind us of the order. We don't do the good works. We don't try to make ourselves a good person so that we can be accepted by God. He has given us grace. We declare the message of what Jesus has done. He has redeemed us. He has washed us. And this is open to all people. Anyone who will believe can be washed and made new. And our hearts will now belong to Jesus. And we will be people who want to do good works. Not to earn anything, but because it's the right thing to do. This is a glorious passage. It blew me away as I began to study it. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And it is that grace, that grace that has washed us, has cleansed us, has redeemed us, that liberates us to be people who are zealous for good deeds, who live self-controlled lives, and who renounce the ungodliness that used to characterize us. It is a free gift to any who believes. Thank you for listening to this message from Woburn Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at www.wilburnbaptistchurch.org or you can also like us on Facebook.